The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's really soft. It is. How's that? Better? Great. Okay, good morning. So, um, I'm going to give a talk this morning on a really um, kind of core teaching, core teaching of the Buddha. Just kind of read it out here and um, give you my. Well, as my teacher, one of my main teachers is Howie Cohn, as he says, his stray thoughts. These are my stray thoughts on it. Um, but this teaching can be, um, sometimes it's translated in a few different ways. Um, here's one version. Nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Another way of saying it, a practitioner has heard that nothing is worth clinging to as me, I, or mine. She directly knows all things. Um, and I think it's really interesting, the import, one of the important parts of this that I uh, like to take note of is the part about not being worth is not worth clinging to as me, myself, or mine. Nothing whatsoever is, is worthy of being clung to as I or mine. So what the Buddha taught was not, sometimes it's translated as nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me, myself, or mine. But we can't actually cling to anything, right? Because it's um, impermanent, ephemeral, being away. So it's really interesting that the Buddha taught nothing whatsoever is fit to be regarded as me, myself, or mine. These passing experiences that we have, um, we get really um, bamboozled by them (laughs) and take them as somehow defining ourselves. And um, a lot of the way that we suffer is through these uh, contracted ideas of ourselves that we build around this passing experience, right? It kind of stops us from seeing the way that we're actually already free when we create these ideas out of passing experiences and decide that this is, our, this is me, this is mine. And we can't really be reduced or explained by these kind of things that we can't hold on to, the experiences of the body or the mind. But our tendency habituated, strong tendency to fall into this mistaken belief really imprisons us. Um, and the Buddha taught how our mind, he, t- he taught about how our minds are conditioned to do this. It's, it's one, of the, one of the primary ways we can think about it is through the craving for becoming. So the, you know, the second noble truth is that... Um, the origin or the cause of suffering is craving, and there's three kinds, and one is the craving for becoming, and it's this, it's, uh, you can describe it as this tendency to take these experiences and decide, these trans- transient experiences and decide that they're ourselves. 
if we align ourselves with the truth, actually, that that's not the case, um, then we can kind of break out of this imprisoning habit that we have, right? Um, and so I'm really, I'm kind of referring, I'm referring to the teaching of not-self, and sometimes people think that it's a little scary. It can be scary. But really, the truth is that if we can have a deeper understanding through our practice more on a daily, day-to-day, and even moment-to-moment basis that what we're experiencing doesn't define us and these contracted ideas that we have are not us. There can be some really deep freedom, peace, and ease in that. So I like to talk about it a lot. I'm kind of a not-self person. I didn't even know, that. I didn't even realize the irony of that before it came up. <laughs> um, you know, the, uh, but they, they do say that some, there's gateways that people have. You know, you might think about your own gateways to um, awakening, that you might be kind of more of a understanding um, suffering person that might be the gateway to awakening or understanding impermanence or understanding not self um, so not self is kind of one of my one of my things so what's really interesting to me is that we really can see and maybe maybe it's the fear that we, that people don't really recognize it in just mindfulness practice we're seeing not self so much um these, we, we're in a sitting and a self gets created and then it disintegrates and then another one gets created and it disintegrates, you know. Um, suddenly we have a thought that um, there's a hunger pang and we become the, and then we're the person who wants a burrito and it's very entrancing, it's very enchanting and that's us for a long time and there's a whole image that goes with it, the whole thing and then for whatever reason then there's a thought, oh, maybe instead of that there's a thought about, uh, you know, what your boss said to you at work. And then you become this angry person. And then suddenly the mind realizes it's supposed to be being mindful. And then for perhaps a minute, one becomes the bad meditator. And then one remembers Gil's teaching, you know, not to judge. (laughs) And then then becomes a person who's gently leading oneself back to the breath, yeah. And all these, you know, these, these selves, just, you, sometimes you just see them and they can just disappear in a poof. You know, just a and um, so we're seeing this. We see it. Um, and the more we start to see it, the more actually the habituation shifts in the other direction. And that's how we're freeing ourselves. And why it's really one of the things that really draws us back and back to the practice as we start to let go slowly but surely to that habit of taking, taking all of that so seriously and thinking and, and believing and really being enchanted and, and, and engrossed and, and defined by those stories. So it's a beautiful practice. And it's really interesting because this um, non-clinging um, it's an instruction for practice, so right? In, in mindfulness, we're practicing non-clinging. It's also a description of the awakened mind. And Joseph Goldstein says this, but non-clinging is not only an instruction of practice, 
On a second level, it's also a description of the awakened mind. If we want to know what enlightenment is like, what awakening is like, we can practice the mind of non-clinging, non-fixation, non-attachment to anything at all. It's the mind of open groundlessness. So we can really let go also of, you know, one of the beautiful things is we keep practicing and we see the cells disappear and poof and, and we're laying the groundwork, we're dropping a lot more moments of mindfulness into the mind and they're arising more in the future because that's, that's the way the practice works. And then sometimes we can have these epiphanies where we see through some old entangled view of the self and we see how false it is. We see how it's been holding us down and it's, it, it, it doesn't have any intrinsic truth to it. You know, all these epiphanies that we can sometimes have. Uh, early, early on in my practice, it gave me so much confidence in the practice. Um, I had uh, really terrible mind states when I started practicing. It was really it was not a pretty picture. <laughs> and I was sitting with just, just everything. I was practicing. Um, I practiced for a really short periods sitting, but also I was doing a lot of kind of daily practice. And so um, I was just sitting, and I was sitting with this loneliness. There was a lot of loneliness in the mind. And I was just, I was just using some light noting. I was like, loneliness, loneliness, feeling it in the body, feeling it in the mind. And I just saw that it was, it was just this echo of something I believed about myself in the past when I was really young. It was just recreating itself over and over again and actually had nothing to do with present experience. Um, my life wasn't like that anymore. I had like a good partner at the time and lots of friends. And so it just, that particular, I saw right through it, the story that particular story. And um, it's not that loneliness never reoccurred, but that particular one really disappeared. So we can have these epiphanies, and it's, it's a really beautiful part of the practice to, to have our experience of life opened up so much from letting those kind of things go. liberating about realizing realizing that um, you know, clinging to transient experience causes suffering and um, it's really really interesting because there's a um, interesting kind of cyclical almost relationship of sila and non-harming and ethics to this whole process Um, because without being non-harming without sila and I I mean there may be some people in here who aren't is anybody here not familiar with the five ethical lay five ethical precepts for lay people in the Buddha Dharma okay so um, generally as lay people in, in the Buddha Dharma we try to act according to five ethical precepts. And they're training precepts, so it's a um, training in ethics and non-harming behavior, really. It's the core of all of these um, precepts is to not act in a harming way. Harming to ourselves and harming to others, both of, of completely equal importance. So um, the first one is um, to refrain from harming 
living beings. Um, and um, the second is, well, I might not say them in order this morning, but um, the second is to refrain from false or harsh speech, or, uh, and then another is to refrain from um, not taking that which is not freely given, so stealing, but also one can explore it a little bit more, not taking that which is not freely given, um, and um, refraining from sexual misconduct, which is anything that is harming to oneself or others, anything that's exploitative. And the fifth is to refrain from intoxicating um, substances that lead to carelessness or heedlessness, which and the, the main purpose of that is to prevent us from being in a state where we're more likely to break the other precepts. So um, non-harming, without non-harming, the mind really can't rest and be in this place of starting to notice and see the truth of the way things are, that things are, that one can't really rest so well in mindfulness, right? The mind is, is, will, is agitated, so one can't start to see that we can't cling to anything as me, myself, or mine, that it's not worth that, that are just physical experiences, this body that's slipping away, these mind states that's slipping away aren't us. Without, we have to have a great deal of rest in the mind in order to see that. It's beautiful. We can do a lot of things to get that rest. One is to be here in Sangha together, practice together. Um, But we have to have this um, non-harming, we have to have enough non-harming conduct in order to be able to slip into mindfulness. And then the thing is, then we start to see this. Um, we start to see more and more that nothing is, nothing is fit to be, nothing that we experience is fit to be clung to as me, myself, or mine. We start to see it, and then we start to realize more deeply, we start to, the mind suddenly starts to realize that the only thing that's truly important, we start to see what's really, truly important, the only thing that's important is, non, is non-harming. So it's a really interesting cyclical process. And that's part of the kind of the beauty of what we see. It's, it's dimensional. It's not... Um, sometimes when we can say you know, talk about not-self or talk about, oh, it's all just passing. All these experiences are just passing, just going away. They're arising and passing away. can seem detached. can seem like, oh, what we're talking about is some kind of indifference. But it's truly, truly the opposite in this fascinating, mysterious way. Once we really see um, deeply and closely how the mind has such a tendency to create a state of suffering out of what's actually slipping away, and we see the slipping away of it, the more we see that, the deeper we understand in a, in a, in, in a deep way that really the most important thing is just to be non-harming as much as possible in any moment. Um, and so there's a lot of loving kindness in this. It's intrinsic to the whole process. Without, you know, the loving kindness has to be there for the non-harming to happen and for the state of mind of resting in, the, in, in, in our practice. And then we start to cultivate it so much more through the whole practice. 
So there's this interesting quote that I saw this morning that kind of relates to that. I think I'll read it. Um, I believe it's here. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I just find it really... I'm going to read it. It's a little risky, but... <laughs> the Nisera posted this this morning. She's one of the teachers in this tradition. and um, So she... This is a quote from Jeff Foster, who's a... I think his, his, his origin of his teaching is mostly in non-dual. Um, and he wrote, I once saw a popular spiritual teacher addressing a recently bereaved woman. He said, your heartbreak is illusory and only the activity of the separate self. One day the separate self will vanish along with all suffering. And in that moment I saw a deep, deep sickness and inhumanity at the heart of contemporary spirituality. The invalidation of trauma, the false promises, power games, suppression of the feminine. And I vowed to bow to that broken heart as if it were God herself until the end of time. I left one word out there, a curse word in there. Um, but what I'm trying to point to is um, that if we practice with loving kindness, that a lot of times the, the teaching of not-self um, or the teaching of non-clinging leaves out this ex- extremely important element um, or seems to downplay the extraordinary, extraordinary importance of compassion, of connection, um, and of loving kindness. And so one of the ways that I'm trying to point to that is to point to how we see so closely when, we're, when we really understand um, and see that things are slipping away, it kind of breaks our heart and then it can open it up so much to a connected, loving way to much more non-harming. So how do, we, how do we practice with this? I mean, mindfulness, as I said, we're doing it. As Joseph Goldstein said, you know, it's a practice of non-clinging when we're truly um, just, just experiencing what's happening. The, the, it could be the sensation of the breath or um, something, a mind state, and not pushing it away, not trying to grasp at it. Um, one of the things that I like to do, and I think this is a little bit maybe underrated, there's lots of different ways to practice, is to actually have a little bit of, uh, to do wisdom reflections. When I'm caught up, you know, we can have these repetitive, um, stuck ideas about the self. We can have, you know, ones that we notice over time when we're practicing. Um, like a lot of people have a lot of self-judgment, stories of insufficiency, and um, and it's that's another version, you know. It's another version of taking um, mistakenly taking impermanent experience to be self. Um, and some of them, like I said, can be so limiting. Sometimes we have really uh, we can really see the way that we've been bamboozled. Um, when we're when we're in a state of, of of 
really strong emotion that's um, quite aversive, like anger or frustration or impatience. If you've ever, you know, if you really tried to practice with a little bit of anger or impatience, there's a real hard self in there, right? I mean, sometimes it's really, if you can take a step back, sometimes it can be really quite funny. (laughs) If you can, because it's a super entitled self. I mean, in an angry state, in a frustrated state, in an impatient state. Um, I remember being once, I was on a three-month retreat, and there was a point in time when the mind was really settled, but, and I could see it doing all of this really carefully, and oh my God, the mind was so, I was so, it was cold in the hall, and I was like, there was like this little, completely angry child inside of me and the the showers were cold and I was just I was so ready to write a note so ready to write a note and and I'm not a note writer and I just and um and uh it was so interesting to see the the this way that um there was a huge strong self there and um we can notice that it's funny oftentimes we're really caught up in and angry, like, you know, I reference the boss or whatever it might be. And it's something that, a story that we're really buying into over and over again. And it really can be a tremendous amount of suffering in that. And so, in a lot of ways, when there's something repetitive like that, something habitual, something that's eating up our energy and our peace and our freedom, right? Because it eats, it eat, these kind of things can if we're noticing them more, we can see how they're, they're eating it up. We can start to see how we sometimes feel quite, quite a bit of peace from the practice. And then there's a whole other experience that we're having when we're caught up. Is um, I like to drop in a sort of a wisdom reflection. You know how... Um, you know, all of us, if we keep coming back to this practice enough... Have little, have these, this, these realizations. See that, like I said, certain things disappear in a poof. Our, our contracted ideas of ourselves. We start to see that we, you know, if we just hold on to them, we suffer, and start to see that, see that some, somewhat deeply. And so we can recall those to mind, and have a little mantra of wise view to drop in. It really helps me personally. Um, to if I have that contracted, angry, repetitive thing happening um, around some situation, to actually just drop in a wisdom, wisdom reflection that this is a passing, impermanent experience. And, and also to really call to mind what I already know from the practice. I know this. It's not me. It's not mine. And that's, those are the words that I use. But I think that, you know, many other people, those are kind of the words I use. I actually use a lot of different ones. But um, different kinds of practices and words and phrasing for the practice resonate and work for different people. So it could be helpful to find your own. But in the midst of it all, calling to mind what we know because we can see wisdom arise in the mind through the practice over time more and more and we might think oh it's not happening so much but why you know why are we keep turning back to the practice you know why are you if you're all here wisdom arose in the mind. 
wisdom and loving kindness also at the same time. Because, um, you know, loving kindness is a simple wish for well-being. So in order to come here, there had to be this loving kindness in the mind. Um, just a simple wish for well-being. Like, may I be well and to come here. And sometimes we, and people will miss that. But it's so important to notice as a really important part of the practice, wholesome states of mind arising. And um, so that's, that's just one instance of that. And it's not necessarily this huge heart opening that, that maybe was the decision to come here or to go to sit on any given day. So maybe we think that loving kindness is this really huge thing, but it's, it's not necessarily. And also wisdom, we can skip over the wisdom that we, we're experiencing because, you know, like I said, we're here. So just calling to mind um, the ways that we've seen, that we know in the past. I mean, the Buddha actually taught this. Um, to just kind of contemplate this. He wrote, any feeling whatsoever, any perception whatsoever, any fabrications whatsoever, any consciousness whatsoever, is to be seen as it actually is with wise view. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not what I am. So if we can just have a little wise view, sometimes it can really kind of maybe be the um, trigger that can shake us out, shake us out of um, some of those really contracted states that we get into where we're mistakenly believing that something that really cannot define us is is, is us. So um, I was just thinking where I was going. So what's left? This is another thing I like to refer to. When there, all these stories aren't aren't there, if we're not, um, if we're not the transient experiences. Um, that's sometimes what people find scary about teachings about not self or really letting go of craving. But there's a lot of peace and ease to be found there. And it's a little scary maybe because it can't be described, right? I'm not going to answer like what's left. But I actually really like to point to the fact that Since we're not, you know, these, we're not just our body, we're not our bodies, bodily experiences, we're, and we're not just a passing state of mind of, let's say, okay, there's loneliness, or there's anger, actually that's not me, that's a, just a mind state, just passing. What's left? And we can see that in a state where we're really in touch with the loving kindness, the value for non-harm that I was referring to earlier, 
there's a certain kind of really sweet joy there. And we can get in touch with that. There can be a lot of freedom. And it's quite empowering is the other thing. When we believe that we're whatever our little stories are, um, then we're quite limited by them. So to contemplate the mind without these kind of contracted ideas is to kind of really get in touch with the potential we have, the capacity we have for joy and peace and freedom. Deepa Ma, who's a teacher that I really like to talk about, not people don't talk about her so much. How many people here have heard of Deepa Ma? Yeah, because you're at IMC. So you've heard of Deepa Ma, that's great. Um, but Deepa Ma was, uh, she's, she taught a lot of our teachers. I don't know if she taught Gil, but she taught Howard Cohn, and she taught a lot of people who taught Gil. And she, she taught like Joseph and Jack and Cornfield and, and all those folks. And So she has a direct impact. She has a direct impact on, on us. She has a, um, we're part of that lineage. And she was reputed to be, well, People who know her very, very um, well. She was an incredible meditation master. She had a really hard life, and she had these little pithy teachings. She said, "Each of us has enormous power. It can be used to help ourselves and to help others." She saw this through noticing the mind, and she wasn't talking about. She was. She was this in, uh, Indian woman who lived in a very poor neighborhood. I think a place that we would considered to be called a slum and um, she had very little and um, she had been married very very young and that was a really difficult experience for her she lost a lot she lost her husband she lost um, at least one child I think might have been more than that and um, she she had this difficult life but through her practice she said each of us has enormous power it can be used to help ourselves and help others and she wasn't talking about the kind of power over that many people have. She wasn't talking about power of status or power of wealth. She saw the power that we have to really connect and that really arises out of understanding non-clinging and connecting with our experience in a way that we can understand that we're not these limited ideas I mean, she had enormous power. It's still resonating now. How would I, how would any of us actually in this room, because we're direct beneficiaries of the Dharma gift she gave over and over again. Um, She said, free your mind. Your mind is all stories. She didn't say your mind is some story. She said your mind is all stories. Right? So what's, that's why I say what's left. What's left. And um, apparently a student asked her once, you know, Deepa Ma, what's in your mind? <laughs> you know, just what's in your mind right now? It's great. Like, such a great idea <laughs> to ask her what's in your mind. And she said, um, okay, i got to get it right. She said, loving kindness, concentration, 
loving kindness, concentration, and I think she said peace. There were three things. Well, come back to me. It was just like that. It was three things. I'm sure she said loving kindness and concentration. And um, so we can touch into that. I, I firmly believe. Look. And, you know, when we have these thoughts of doubt about ourselves, they're just false. They're thoughts in the mind also. Thoughts that, oh, this is just for Deepama or this is just for Gil. (laughs) Whoever, somebody else can practice this well and see this and feel this ease and this peace, not me. And that's just a passing thought also. It's called doubt, the hindrance of doubt. And... um, and so, you know, I like to talk about Deepama because she's a woman. She was a woman. She was a lay woman. She was a mother. She was a grandmother. She was a uh, brown woman. She was an Indian woman. She was a poor woman. And um, she can, you know, really be a model in a different way, perhaps than some, some other people for us. Um, and with her deep, deep understanding, she had extraordinary sila. I'm pointing back to what I was talking about before. The deeper our understanding is, the more we start to really realize that caring, kindness, non-harming is really all that matters because what, you know, these other transient things don't matter in the same way. You know, she would just, uh, there's stories of her. If you read the book about her, it's great. Um, Someone loaned her a pair of socks or gave her a pair of socks, but she wasn't certain, you know, that it had been given. And so she just left them behind, um, you know, she'd be very, very careful with Sila, right? She understood deeply that trying to, that, you know, transgressing in that way wasn't going to bring happiness. That's the thing is with, with ethics, we get mistaken about what will bring us happiness. All of those ethical precepts I referred to earlier are trying to stop us from mistakenly by you know mistakenly believing certain things will make us happy when they won't because that's not where joy is to be found. So I think I'm going to end with a little um with a little reading quote from Ajahn Chah referring to talking a little bit about non-clinging. And here he, ta- he uses the word heart, and um, it's just interchangeable for mind because in the Buddhist teachings, the word that's often translated as mind is, is, is really... Ref- um, in the original language, there's no distinction between mind and heart. It's mind-heart. Chitta is the original word. So he uses the word heart. He's talking mind. You can think to yourself mind-heart or mind Ajahn Chah says, The nature of our heart is such that whenever it clings and grasps, there is agitation and confusion. 
First it might wander over there, then it might wander over here. When we come to observe this agitation, we might think that it's impossible to train the heart, and so we suffer accordingly. We don't understand that this is the way the heart is. There will be thoughts and feelings moving about like this, even though we are practicing, trying to attain peace. That's the way it is. When we have contemplated the nature of the heart again and again, we will come to understand that this heart is just as it is and can't be otherwise. We will know that the heart's ways are just as they are. That's its nature. If we see this clearly, then we can detach from thoughts and feelings. We don't have to add on anything more by constantly having to tell ourselves that that's just the way it is. When the heart truly understands, it it lets go of everything. Thinking and feeling will still be there, but that very thinking and feeling will be deprived of power. And I like that because, um, as I said, I feel the practice is empowering. And certain things, beliefs that we have about ourselves, that hold power, in a way, over us, we can uh, let go of over time. So... That's, um, I'm finished talking. And if anybody has any questions or comments, it could just be about practice. If anybody's interested, welcome some discussion. Thank you for the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a question about something you mentioned earlier in the talk about the second noble truth and how there's kind of three kinds of craving. Um, Could you tell us about the other two and also speak a little bit more about how we can be more compassionate with this craving for becoming? Mm, Thanks. Yeah. The lists are endless. And if you just keep talking, another list comes up. (laughs) So, um, yeah. The three kinds of craving. Craving for sense pleasures, sense desires. Uh, Craving for sense pleasures is the first one. So just wanting... um, Yummy food, nice smells, comfortable bed, <laughs> craving for sense pleasures. Craving for becoming. It's craving to be, to exist over and over again. Craving for non becoming. It's also suffering. So that can be described as uh, not wanting unpleasant things to exist. But also, we know it's sometimes people, we don't want to exist, right? Um, but it can manifest in other ways. It can just be, you might see it arising if you're just wanting to sleep all the time or uh, a feeling just like wanting to disappear in a certain situation. There's examples of craving for, the craving for non-becoming. So those are the three. And having a lot of compassion um, with the craving for becoming. I mean, the whole practice is based on compassion. Um, there's the first noble truth that you know all of our um, ex- ex- all of our experience is unsatisfactory. That the, all these things that are um, in ways unsatisfactory. So having a lot of compassion. I mean, one of the ways to have more compassion is sometimes it just develops naturally through the mindfulness practice um, and seeing what we see over and over. Um, another way is that one can actually cultivate compassion by doing either a compassion practice or a loving kindness practice. Um, so I find for myself really, really helpful to say the phrase, may I be free of this suffering when I'm in the midst of it sometimes. Um, because for example, and it helps me to disidentify from it and to identify with what's actually causing the suffering. So for example, if I'm angry, 
uh, if there's anger in the mind, then I'm knowing, I know that like anger is the suffering, right? Rather than the situation that uh, the, what other someone else is doing or something, that just to touch in and 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 feel for a moment the suffering of that anger, and you can look at the whole story of it, the becoming of it, um, um, or it may be like a self-judgment story, right? Um, one of the things to do is just drop in for a moment of mindfulness, feel the actual turmoil, physical sensations, manifestations of it in the body, in the mind, just momentarily even if one can drop into that, and then just have a compassion phrase, may I be free of this suffering, you know? And then we can see um, more that that's actually what is, what's happening, that the mind's creating it. It's like a second arrow. Does that help? Does that answer your question? Yeah. It's good to have you here again. Hi. Yeah, I remember you. Um, so the question that I was having was, um, I think at the beginning of your talk, you said that non-harming was in a way, a prerequisite for mindfulness. And, you know, this is something that I've, I've come to really feel viscerally, but I've been trying to explain it to others and I struggle. And I was wondering if you can try to expand a little more on that. Great, yeah. Um, it's actually a very classical teaching, a very classical truth that we... Um, purify the conduct, and then we can purify the mind. Um, it's just true that we will have, even if it's not so really obvious to us, we'll have some sense of remorse if we're engaging in harming behavior. Um, there's a way that the mind knows <laughs> um, that there's a way that the mind knows that it's acting, it has acted in some kind of way that hurt, harmed another being or harmed ourselves. This is my experience. Um, let, yeah. me, let me qualify the question. Yeah. Um, the context that I was thinking was in the fact that if I really have the intention to not harm, I will be able to see things that I couldn't see otherwise. Uh-huh. Like I would be more aware, more conscious. Ah, that's very, yeah, very beautiful noticing. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And this is just an insight that I've had, but I, I really fundamentally believe that not having that intention is blinding us from seeing. Yeah, I mean, if we're engaging in harming behavior, it's because we're acting out of greed or hatred or delusion. Right, and being aware requires that we not have greed. Hate. We're not wanting something to be different right now. We're not wanting, you know, we're just not wanting something to be different. And and if we're harming, we're wanting something to be different. We're acting out of greed, hatred, or delusion. So it those things kind of. I this is my take on what you're saying is um, that uh, not having greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind supports not having greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. Right. Not not acting in a harming way, 
um, means that means that our mind is not distracted. It can accept what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so we're, it looks like we're past time, or it's 10.45. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming in here for participation. And dedicate the merit. May any benefit from our practice be shared with all beings. May it serve to awaken all beings. May all beings be happy. May they be free of suffering. May they experience joy and non-clinging and loving kindness.